0: To Carmel Presbyterian Church's podcast channel, open up a Bible or just listen in. We hope this week's message is a blessing to you. Well, good morning again. I'm back. <laughs> Great to be here. Is, is uh, Carmel always have this kind of weather? Always, yeah, always. <laughs> but uh, if you could turn in your Bible to John chapter 12, and we're going to stand for the reading of God's Word. And you know what I'm going to say if you've been here the last other weeks I've been here. I'm going to say, just put your thumb there and wait, and we'll look at it. But I want you to hear the, God, the Word of God. So let's stand together as we, as we hear God's Word. Here's what John writes in verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches from palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, fear not, O daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when he was glorified, then they understood that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went out to meet him was they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another... You see, you are getting nowhere. Look, the world has gone after him. Now, among those who went up to the festival to worship were some Greeks. So these came and said to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life if anyone would serve me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. In church, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Have a seat. Okay. There is, I think you'll agree with me, if you think about it just for a minute, there's a quest in every one of us for Glory. Whether it's the little seven-year-old who scores a goal in a soccer game on Saturday morning in AYSO and, and, and runs with his hands up and or her hands up and looks for the gaze of mom and dad that approve of what he's just done, or whether it's the, the movie star on the red carpet, the Academy Awards. Those of you who are younger, they used to, everybody used to watch this show called the Academy Awards, but that's when people went to see movies, so it's all over now. But, but they stand there in their red dresses. You can YouTube it and see all the dresses. But there's a, there's a quest for glory. Or maybe you're one of the 457 Democrats running for president of the United States. You know, that's a, that too is a quest for glory. Or you stay up really late at night and you, you wanna write a good paper for your professor and, and you wanna hear the professor say, that's a great paper, can I have a copy? It's a quest for glory. The billionaire who wants yet another billion dollars, that's, that's a quest for more glory. Get this, get this. Everyone searches for glory Even the universe searches for glory. In Romans 8, Paul says the the creation groans, waiting for redemption. And God himself wants glory. Now we're in John 12. We're going to be here this week and in two weeks. So we're we're getting two parts about unlikely glory in John 12. But John 12 is all about the glory of the Father and the glory of Jesus and your glory too. So hang in there because you're going we get, to, we get glory in this passage, both, both weeks. Now glory is a big theme in John's gospel. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and then verse 14 of chapter 1, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and John says, we have seen His what? His glory. glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And when Jesus does his first miracle, he converts the water into wine. John tells us he did this to show his glory. Throughout the gospel, Jesus is adamant that he received glory, not from people, but from the Father Himself. He says, in John chapter 8, he says, If I glorify myself, and my glory is then my glory is nothing. He says, It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say He is our God. Now in John 12, it's Passover, Jerusalem is bustling. Uh, it, it, Josephus tells us that about two and, a half, two and a half million people came to Jerusalem. If you want to get a picture of how big Jerusalem was, it's, I just learned about this, this phrase last night, but you have a, uh, the golden rectangle in Carmel where you don't even have an address and, you know, it's so cool, you just say, you know, go to Frank's house and, and, uh, and that's neat. I wish I didn't have an address, but... Um, But ancient Jerusalem is about the size of the Golden Triangle. Is that what it's called? Did I get it right? Yeah, it's about that size. Picture, it's more crowded than a summer Sunday afternoon in Carmel. I mean, it's two and a half million. He's probably exaggerating, but even if you cut that number in half, there are so many people there. And and the, the buzz in Jerusalem is all about Jesus. And furthermore, the buzz is about the fact that a few days earlier, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. So the popularity of Jesus has has reached its apex, and the hatred for Jesus has reached its climax as well. So the Jews are intent on killing Jesus, but now that Lazarus has been raised, and people are trying to get a a picture of, of Lazarus, well, now they want to kill him too. So, I mean, this is comprehensive hate, uh, right in the midst of comprehensive popularity. There was a quest in each of our souls for glory. You like movies? Old movies? Okay. I'll tell you about one. It came out in 1954. Anybody see uh, On the Waterfront? Who saw that? It, you you got to see it. It's one of the greats. Black and white. Marlon Brando, L- Rod Steiger. Uh, and it's about, about two brothers. Terry, Marlon Brando, who was a boxer. And his brother, uh, Charlie... Charlie's played by Rod Steiger, and Charlie is a, an attorney for the Mafia boss. And early in Terry's career, his brother Charlie talked him into taking a fall in his boxing career so that they could have some gambling uh, profit in the Mafia. And that, that one incident of cheating changed all of his life, this young boxer. He, he could have been great, but everything changed because he took a fall. And there's that great scene in the movie. I'm going to ruin it for you a little bit if you haven't seen it. Where Rod Steiger and Marlon Brando are in the back of that car. They are on the waterfront. Uh, Marlon Brando has just been a, a dock worker all his life. He not, he's not been, hasn't been up to much. He could have been great. And he says to his brother, he says, see if you can say the line. I could have been a contender. I could have been a contender, but I wasn't. I took the fall for you, Charlie. There's that nagging ache in every one of our souls, especially as we get older, that, I could have been a contender. I missed it. Somehow I missed what might have been. I missed the glory. And this passage is going to show us how Jesus got glory and how we might get glory as well. So what we're going to look at, we're going to look at it in in three parts. We're going to look at Jesus and the crowds, Jesus and his donkey, Jesus and his hour. So here we go. Uh, Jesus and his crowds. Uh, Jesus is center stage. If you look at verse 12, it begins with the words, the next day. The next day after what? The next day after the Jews decided to kill Lazarus along with Jesus. Well, John presents, if you read this or think about it carefully, John presents a number of crowds. In verse 12, there's this big throng that is going to meet Jesus with these palm branches. But that crowd consists of two sub-crowds. Look at your passage look down to verse 17, there's the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb. That's about two miles away. And they continue to bear witness. So they're giving witness to the greatness of Jesus. He did it. We saw it. But then there's another crowd that goes out because they heard he had done this sign. So these are people who are curious. All right? The next group, if you look at verse 19, is the Pharisees. And the Pharisees say to one another, look at that. The whole world has gone after him. Now there's an irony here that John intends by placing this right here as he writes his gospel. What's the most famous verse in the Bible? Surely you five know. For God so loved the world. Don't you, aren't you glad you sat in the second row and I can just talk with you the whole time? <laughs> Next In two weeks I'll be back, you'll be in the back row. But uh, <laughs> No, don't, I'll be so lonely if you don't sit up here. But um, for God so loved the world that he sent his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but... Have everlasting life. That's that's the verse we hear most and cherish most and, and memorize most in Sunday school. But the next verse is very pertinent. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. It's about the world being saved. And here the opponents of Jesus are saying, doggone it, this is coming to fruition. Look at that. The world has gone after him. And then there's a third group that's, that comes. There's some Greeks. Now, when you read the word Greek in the New Testament, don't think people from Greece. Think somebody who's not a Jew. In the Jewish mind, you are were, you were, you were either a Jew or a Gentile. So everybody from Africa and Native Americans and New Jersey and all that, everybody that's not a Jew is a Gentile. And a synonym for Gentile would be to call them Greeks, okay? So some Gentiles, some Greeks, come to Jesus and they, they want to talk to him. All right? Let's look at the second point, Jesus and his donkey. The crowds go out to celebrate and they bring branches of palm trees and they shout to him, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What's going on here is this very, very political Very this-worldly, high drama. The action of the crowd, you got to get this, the action of the crowd looks back about 200 years. 200 years earlier, uh, there was a period from Alexander the Great's time on, that's about 350 years earlier, there was a period of Hellenization, where the, the world, the ancient Near East was becoming Greek in culture, all right? And... The Syrians came about 200 years before the time of Christ and they took over Jerusalem and absolutely stunning what happened. They brought Greek ideas and Greek practices into the temple in Jerusalem. This was utterly abhorrent. It should be like living without an iPhone. I mean, it's just terrible. <laughs> but here, here's some of the things that happened. The, the, the games, the athletic games would be in public and the men would compete naked and they would have a reverse circumcision Uh, operation, so that they looked Greek. (laughs) Gross! I can't even think about it. Why did I say that? Um, (laughs) uh, Antiochus IV was the ruler, and he renames himself Antiochus Epiphanes, which is a veiled claim to be God himself. He brings an altar into the temple that is dedicated to Zeus, the Greek god. And if the Jews were caught celebrating any of their holidays, Passover, Feast of Booths, Day of Pentecost, capital punishment, they would be executed for worshiping their own God. So you can imagine, this is a terrible, terrible thing that's happened, and in that context, which was just the worst it could be, there was one family, the the Maccabeus family, and they began a kind of a people's revolt, and they rose up and eventually chased the Syrians out of Jerusalem. And gave back the temple to proper Hebrew Jewish worship. One of the sons of, of the dad of this family rode into Jerusalem after it had all been done. He rode in on a war horse. His name was uh, Simon Maccabeus. He rides into Jerusalem on a war horse. And the people take palm branches. By the way, palm branches are a symbol for the nation of Israel. And they wave the palm branches and they quote Psalm 118 and they say, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna means save us. And they celebrate. 200 years later, the Romans have come, and the Romans are imposing all things Roman on the Jews in Jerusalem, and the Jews hate the Romans. And here comes this guy named Jesus, and boy, we've heard stories about him. He can turn water into wine. He can raise a guy that's never walked. He can, he can do all these things. He's even raised Jesus from the de- uh, Lazarus from the dead. And when he, they hear that he's coming to town, they reenact what had taken place 200 years earlier. They grab the palm branches. They say, Hosanna, save us. And they add something to Psalm 118 that is not there. Even the king of Israel, Messiah, Is here. Goodbye to the Romans. In the midst of all this brouhaha, Jesus throws two amazing curveballs. It's baseball season, so we'll go with a curveball metaphor, all right? Curveball number one, he rides into Jerusalem not on a war horse, but on a donkey. And by doing so, he symbolizes that he is not the conquering warrior. Simon Maccabeus. No, he is the humble savior of Zechariah chapter 9. He's coming in humility. He's announcing what kind of Messiah he will be. And, you know, when when we, in our time, we have chapters and verses, and we quote a verse, and and that's pretty much the end of it. That's called proof texting. Uh, In the Jewish mind, if you quoted a little part of a section of Scripture, the mind would immediately go to the context And in Zechariah, this humble king is struck down. And this would have caused the people to scratch their heads. What is he doing on a donkey? Jesus is acting out a Bible interpretation, and his donkey shows what kind of Messiah he will be. Let's go to the third part of our study. Jesus and his hour. Look, the world is going after him. And here they come. Here come the Greeks. And Jesus turns to them and says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, if you were reading the Gospel of John, you would say, finally, and here's the mystery. I think five or six times we've read in the Gospel of John to this point, you know, he would have done this, but his hour had not yet come. Jesus hid himself because his hour had not yet come. And the reader cannot help but say, well, what is this hour? And when Jesus says, hey, the hour has come, as a reader, you say, oh, I'm going to get to find out what it is. The hour has come, what? For the Son of Man to be glorified. Oh, my goodness. Now, you've been listening really hard and great. Can you you bear with me for one more? You're learning all this stuff about the Bible. What does he mean when he says, son of man? That's the favorite title that Jesus applies to himself. He does it over and over again. And one commentator said he does it because it's perfectly ambiguous. (laughs) But that phrase, that title, son of man comes up primarily in Ezekiel and the book of Daniel. And if you went back to Daniel chapter 7, you'd see that the son of man, when he comes, He comes in the clouds of glory and he comes to rule and reign over all the earth. So when these people heard him refer to himself this time as the son of man and coupling that with the glory that's going to be revealed, they're going to be thinking, ah, I was confused when you were doing the Zechariah 9 thing, but now I'm not confused. Now I know it's all about your glory, your rule, your reign. We're on the right side of history here. And then Jesus throws the second curveball. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. This is the kind of passage that we as a church could, could, could ponder for a decade and still not probe the depths. Leslie Newbigin, a uh, missionary to India and great commentator, said, In these verses, the flaming heart of the universe is revealed. What is that flaming heart? It's the cross. He's talking about his own death. All right. Everything, I am so happy you're here. Everything you need to know is on your hand, okay? Get your left hand up. Everybody, get your left hand up. Everything we need to know is on our hand about the gospel. All right? You, you have it with you all the time. Your right hand works, too, if you're left-handed, but I'm right. So here, here's, the, here's the big five. You ready? Come on. Get it up. There we go. Uh, incarnation. God became one of us. All right? Crucifixion. This God became one of us. He died. Three days later, what is it? Resurrection. Forty days later, ascension. Jesus ascends to the Father... And he he is seated there right now, ruling and reigning. And then the fifth finger, what is that? Second coming. The whole gospel on five fingers. You've always got it with you. You don't have to take notes. It's just right there, all right? (laughs) Now, theologians talk about the glorification of Christ. And generally, they refer to these two fingers. They say, well, his glorification is both in his resurrection and in his ascension to the Father. That's good. No qualm with that. But you notice what Jesus does here? he backdates his glorification to the cross. The cross was called a slave's death because it was reserved generally for slaves who had committed some horrendous crime. And if somebody who wasn't a slave was convicted and sentenced to die on a cross, that person was dying a slave's death. It was calculated to make you die as slowly as possible, and you were stripped completely naked. It was a shameful death, As one commentator said, it wasn't designed to enhance your reputation. But Jesus doesn't see it as a moment of shame. He sees it as the hour of His glory. Wow! Are you not riveted by that? The cross of Christ, the eternal Word, has become flesh. He's come to Jerusalem on His own accord. He has come to die. Now, why... We're going to do a little theology. It's going to hurt. It's going to burn some calories. Why would Jesus refer to this as his hour of glory? Can anyone in the room think of anything that was hard for God to do? I mean, when Jesus fed 5,000, do you think he said to his disciples, ah, Bush, I've been cooking all day. <laughs> no, no, no. When he turns water into wine, that, it's not a big deal for him. When God created the universe, he just speaks it into existence. And he says, Glacier National Park, there you are. And Yellowstone, there you are. And Carmel, yeah, there you are. The Golden Triangle, by God, on the seventh day or whatever. (laughs) No big deal. There is one activity of God that that was a problem. Do you know what it is? Do you five know what it is? You're going to get something. You're going to be able to teach your pastors, all right? Cool. The one thing that was difficult for God to do was to forgive us our sins. Why? See, I forgive my friends all the time. They you know, send me some nasty texts and I just say, I forgive you. Why was it hard for God to forgive us? Because God is overflowing, gushing with his love and mercy. And at the same time, he is perfectly just. And there's a collision between those two character qualities of God. Infinite love and perfect justice don't fit hand in hand. Let me show you a verse. Very important verse. Exodus chapter 34. I'll read it to you. Moses goes up on the mountain to get the tablets. And here's what God says to Moses. Exodus 34 verses 7 to 8. Some of the most important verses in all the Bible. God says, The Lord, the Lord. Yahweh, Yahweh. A God merciful and gracious slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. We love this, don't we? Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That's the kind of God I worship. And, the text says, who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. How can both of those be true? How can God love us and forgive us and by no means clear the guilty if we are guilty? There's a story about a woman named Susan Smith. Anybody remember the name Susan Smith? Susan Smith, in 1994, put her three kids in the back of her car, drove them into a lake, and they drowned. They were young children. She immediately went to the police. She concocted a story that... uh, she had been. She was a white woman. She. Uh, she still is a white woman. Um, <laughs> she. She went to the police and said that she'd been ad- abducted by uh, an African American and he took her car and she didn't know where it was, and uh, she was hysterical. And her story fell apart very quickly. The car was found. The children were dead. Uh, she went on trial. This is in South Carolina. Uh, the trial was short. The jury deliberated for less than an hour, and she came back. Uh, they delivered their verdict of guilty on all counts. She was guilty. And today, she's in prison serving a life sentence for this heinous crime. What if the judge in that case, when the jury delivered their verdict, what if the judge had said, you know, Susan, I really have taken a liking to you in in this trial, and you're very articulate, and I'm sure you have a great future. I'm going to sentence you to time served. You're free to go. What would you say? What would you say? You would say, I would say, there there is a corrupt judge there who, who eclipsed justice because somehow he took a liking to Susan Smith. God is like that. The wages of sin is death. It is always death. And it's never been anything but death. And it always will be death. And the story that's going on in John chapter 12, Jesus is glorified because he dies our death for us. And thus he vindicates the justice, or he satisfies the justice of the Father and frees us to enjoy the love of God. Wow. All right. We've locked, talked about Jesus and his crowds, Jesus and his donkey, Jesus and his hour bonus track what about your hour? what about your quest for glory? how is it that you and I might receive the glory that that we crave, that we yearn for? you do I do everyone searches and seeks glory and we do all kinds of silly things to attain it we might spend hundreds of thousands of dollars cheating so our kids can get into the right college That's all about our own glory. We might abuse our body to attain a certain level of beauty. We might spend an inordinate amount of money to get a car that will impress our friends. But we want glory. And I'm not going to tell you that's a bad thing. I'm going to tell you you were made for glory. There is something in you, there is something in me that is desperate for more. Something that says, I could have been a contender and I want to be a contender We yearn for something permanent, something meaningful, something lasting. And the Bible tells us, get this, the Bible tells us that as God's children, we will receive glory. It's in the passage. At the very end, look at the last verse, the one who serves me, well, the father will honor him. Paul writes it like this, 2 Corinthians 3.18, We all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. We're going somewhere. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 49, the great resurrection chapter, Paul says, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, he's talking about Adam who was made out of the dust, So also we shall bear the image of the man of heaven. Christ was glorified. We too will be glorified. But our glory is not in dazzling light. Our glory will be that one day we will have sinless perfection when Christ comes. Okay. Everything I've said comes down to this. That the glory of Jesus is found in the most unimaginable place in the universe. It's found on the cross. And your glory is found in the most unimaginable place. Because Jesus comes along and says, you know what? If you love your life, you'll lose it. If you hate your life in this world, you'll keep it. Now after the 930 service, I had a woman come up to me. She says, I'm kind of enjoying life. Should I feel guilty about that? and I said no I don't think that's the point the point is that we have an allegiance to God that is so great that God is so important that we love him so much that all the stuff of this life we can do without John we're pretty sure is writing late in the first century and by this time people are starting to suffer and die for their faith and John is saying through the lips of Jesus it's worth it hang in there profess Christ, even if it costs you your life. Well, I lived in Naples, Italy for a year, back in the old days, and uh, right next to Naples is a place called Pompeii. Anybody heard of Pompeii or been to Pompeii? Great place, isn't it? Uh, About 70 AD, uh, Vesuvius is a mountain right outside of Naples, and it blew. It went off, and all the volcanic ash came down, and all the people of this little town died. And it's quite fascinating, because 1,700 years later, the town was discovered, and everything was left intact. You can see the artwork that's still in color. You can see people that have been kind of mummified. And, and uh, it's really interesting, because the people had a few minutes' warning as the, the volcano blew, and many of them clutched those things that were most important to them. You can see this on Google images. There's a woman who's clutching her jewels. There's a man who has a handful of coins. There are some priests who've gathered all their idols and put it into a cloth sack, Put them into a cloth sack. There's another married couple, evidently, that, that took their silver and gold, and there they are, frozen in time with their silver, silver and gold. Now here's a question that we'll, we'll end with. If we were frozen in time, What would you be holding on to right now? What is in your hands? What is in the cloth sack? Lord Jesus, we want to come to you and say thank you for this hour of glory. It it is beyond our wildest dreams and imaginations to understand uh, the breadth and the depth of what you've done for us. And to understand how you could face the cross where you bore the sins of the world and call this the moment of your glory. Lord, we simply want to say thank you. And God, there are people in this room who have never bowed their knee to you and I pray that the gospel would penetrate their hearts, that you, Holy Spirit, would draw them in, that they would be born again. That they would be willing to lose their life so that they might gain it. That they would worship you as Lord. And others in this room, Lord, we've heard the gospel again and again. And and we need to be born again, again. (laughs) And we need to come to you and and, uh, praise you and bless you for what you've done for us and in us in Christ. And so we do that. And in his name we pray. And God's children said, "Amen." Amen.